0: Mark chapter seven. Uh, let's let's actually stand together as we read. We're gonna. I'm gonna read uh, twenty three verses here, and if you have a Bible, try to follow along as I go. When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat "...unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with with defiled hands?" you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. But Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles or uh, uh, reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Go ahead and take a seat. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you uh, open our eyes to this passage, open our, our ears to what it is that that not I, but your spirit, wants to say to us this morning, uh, open our eyes to the hypocrisy, even even in our our worship as we as we sing or as we pray or read the Bible and as we as we draw our attention public publicly to you if there 's any hypocrisy there, I pray that you expose that um, uh, any any place where your word is is brushed underneath something else, whether that 's uh, our ideas or our philosophies, uh, any anywhere, any place that we devalue the scriptures, what we're looking into today. I, I ask that you expose that, that you get rid of that this morning, and that you speak through your scriptures. We believe that this is your word, and we ask that you speak to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Um. As, as we all know, uh, the, the world has been shaken, absolutely shaken, by the death of a young man named Trayvon. Um, something like that uh, shakes us to our very core there there are some i'm sure who are uh interested in in the story following things uh listening reading because they're they they like drama mystery uh there's there's um speculations and uh and some people are drawn to that but i think a lot of us um when when we re- when we hear the stories when we, when we listen, when we see photos, um, we're, we're shaken up, not just because it's another news story, but there's, there's something about this particular story that exposes something that's very dark. Something that's, that's evil, if you would. That we see around us every day. Um, all day, everywhere we look, it shakes us up because it reminds us that brokenness exists, sin exists, prejudice exists, racism exists, violence exists. A few few weeks ago, I had a friend down the street who told me that uh, his his black son was in a predominantly white neighborhood and was asked by the police to leave because he looked suspicious. He was just waiting for some friends to play soccer. We're reminded of this. We're reminded of the fact that we live in a broken and fallen and depraved world every time something like that happens or every time I'm walking through my neighborhood and I'm automatically uh, accused of um, buying, I'm there to buy drugs, right? Right? Do you know how many times I've been stopped? And every time I'm stopped and frisked because the police think I'm a crackhead, we're reminded that brokenness exists. Sin exists. Systemic evil exists. Racism, prejudice, you name it. We're reminded that people do steal. That people do buy drugs, that people uh, are prejudice, that there is such a thing as disunity and hatred in people's hearts. And when 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 I when I think, let me let me actually just mention this really quick. I'm going to come back to this story later on. I'm debating whether or not I should tell the story now or save it for save it for later. It's one of the. Biggest challenges of preaching is knowing exactly where and when to tell your stories. Um, when I am, I've, I've been thinking a lot about a guy named George Lyle. Has anybody ever heard of George Lyle? You should, and now you will, all right? I'm going to tell you just the intro to the story, then I'll tell you more later. George Lyle was a slave in the late 1700s and into the early 1800s. He was freed by his slave owner, um, Mr. Sharp. Only then, after Mr. Sharp passed away, died, the family required George to come to come back, demanded him back into uh, into slavery. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story later. But even when we hear that, the systemic sort of issues that we face in our in our society, in our world, all around us, that remind us daily. That these things exist. Where does that come from? Where does this kind of evil come from? Where does hatred come from? Where does disunity come from? Unless we just make it some kind of systemic sort of issue, some big issue, let's take let's let's take it a little uh, more personally. Let's look a little closer into our own lives. How, how can our heart, the human heart, contain such darkness? Palm, Palm Sunday, which is today. Did, did you guys know we're, at, we're on Palm Sunday today? Today's Palm Sunday. Um, it's the week... Before Easter, so next week is Easter. This Friday is what? Good Friday, which, by the way, we have a service this Friday. On Palm Sunday, we we uh, we we typically don't do the palms here, but a lot of churches places you'll go you'll be given palms or um we we sort of remember this time or celebrate this time where people took these palms and they threw them in the street as jesus was entering into the city this this symbol of like royalty like lay down the palms and let him come in with royalty they're praising him they're singing hosanna right yay jesus Woo! everybody say woo! gotta wake up a little bit this morning um palm sunday everybody's praising him we forget that those crowds turned Palm Sunday into Good Friday. We, f- we forget that they're the, the, the same voices that largely, not all of them maybe, but I would imagine some of them, if not the majority, that shouted praise Jesus on Palm Sunday also shouted crucify him a few days later. Where does that come from? Where does this kind of darkness, this kind of sin come from? When we, when we read this list in chapter 7 of these, these sins that Jesus rattles off, uh, he says, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Where do they come from? As Even as, as we read that, which one's of which 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 sins here quote-unquote which of these just jab you like a knife like oh yeah that 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 one right there that one's me this one these two that's me right there they stick me where does that come from so what what we're looking into here jesus says he I'm, i'm giving you the answer at the beginning of my sermon here jesus says they come from the heart okay so they come from not outside in, but they come from within. So we look at the big systemic problems of our life, prejudice, racism we look, we look at the, the personal issues that we face, the, the, the ways that we slander one another or betray one another or have been betrayed, the ways that we murder each other, maybe not with, with, with guns, but with our words. That stuff comes from our heart, and it defiles us, is what Jesus says. It defiles us. And as we read this, some of these, I, I, I can almost guarantee, stick out to you and they jump out to you and they cut you. And we realize then that we are defiled, not just simply defiled in front of man, in front of each other, but we realize that we are defiled in front of God. The next question we have to ask is this. Can the very essence of a person be changed? Can we, the very essence of who we are, our our heart is the biblical word. It's the word that Jesus used. This stuff comes from our hearts, which means our hearts are defiled. The very core of who we are is defiled. Can the very core of somebody... Can the very essence of a person, who they are, can that be changed? Now, Jesus believes that lives are changed, can be changed. And uh, if you believe it, say amen. What we're going to do, and this is why we're in Mark 7 today, we are going to look at two issues that Jesus brings up and confronts the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, on Two issues that really hinder them, and I think us, from real transformation. And even though we're looking back this morning 2,000 years into some cultural scenarios and some religious ideas that people had 2,000 years ago, these two big issues that Jesus throws at them in their face and says, this is what's keeping you from any kind of real life transformation. This is the kind of stuff that's keeping you on a road to destruction. These these two big issues are just as prominent and relevant today. And so I think it's it's uh, perfectly fine for us to dive in uh, to it. So if you are ready to dive in to Mark 7 and get it started, say, let's do it. All right, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. I just want to read these verses again, the first four verses. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do, uh, when, they, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash now that word wash right there is literally the greek word baptize which is actually a really weird word to use for washing your hands and so what this is getting at is the, these these pharisees are living in a system where uh, uh what they understand and, and how they are sort of defiled is through the sinners the people around them that are, that are sinful. I'm just going to pretend that doesn't exist when that happens, okay? Um, so, for, for example, the disciples of Jesus have been meeting with, with uh, lepers. They've been meeting with tax collectors. They've been in touch with Gentiles, bleeding women, corpses. It's hard for us to quite see, see this in our 21st century understanding, but that would mean that these disciples were very dirty, sinful kind of people. They had like sin. Think of it like, like germs. They had sin all over them. And so then here they come, and they're eating, and they're not even washing their hands. Or the word that they're using is baptizing their hands. So the Pharisees would baptize their hands. They would immerse their hands. And in their minds, what this is doing is it's cleaning off the sins. This has nothing to do with germs, all right? This is 1,800 years before Louis Pasteur and germ theory. They're baptizing, they're washing their hands to get the sins off. And so they're looking at his disciples and they're like, how can they eat? How can they, they go about their day touching all these dirty people, sinful people, and then they go and they eat their food without baptizing their hands. And they're getting all that sin inside of them. They're making themselves defiled. They're making themselves sinners. I want you then to just jump straight with me to Jesus' response in verse 6. Look at this. Uh, and he said, Jesus said to them, Well did or well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now let's stop right there. He calls them hypocrites. This is not to say uh, Jesus by calling them hypocrites is not saying that they are not devout that they're not in church every Sunday, that they're not singing all the songs, all right? As a matter of fact, their entire religious system, their ceremonies, was, in their minds, worship. And I I want you to understand that. The way that they lived their lives, following all these things, dipping their hands, baptizing their hands, whatever, it was all to them, worship. And so these are some of the most devout, and moral people that maybe ever walked across this planet like from every standard we could say they are really good people very moral and jesus looks at them and he calls them hypocrites which the word hypocrite does anybody know what that means literally it's 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 the, it's the same word for actor it's the same word for actor how many of you have seen born supremacy any, any Bourne fans? Um, so, uh, Jason Bourne is like this ridiculous thing. I don't even, I don't even know what he is. He's like, he's a human, but he, he, uh, he, he can fight. He's, he's like a martial arts arts expert, Jitsu, Kung Fu. What's he good at, John? You're a martial arts expert. What does Jason Bourne do? Um, he's, uh, He's got reflexes of a cat, a kitty cat. He can move. He can move like that. He knows like 150 languages. Um, he's as uh, smart as Paul Rotman um, or Matt Messel. Um, the Jason, you put all of that together, and what you have is Jason Bourne. All right, this phenomenal sort of character. Now, if you believed that Jason Bourne was real, all right? If you watch the movie, Bourne Supremacy, and and you believed that Jason Bourne was was real, all right? Which, by the way, when I was just preparing this, I Googled Jason Bourne, and I found this, this thread on the internet, and one of the questions, on the, the top question of the thread was, um, where did Jason Bourne learn his skills? And somebody commented on there like, he had no skills. It was a movie. It was an actor. Those skills don't exist. You don't learn those things. It's fake. So if you thought it was real, and I hope I'm not like really disappointing some Bourne fans. If you thought Jason Bourne and all of his glory was real and you met Matt Damon, you might be disappointed. Um, in the same way, Jesus is looking at these guys and he's saying, your worship your devotion the way you're doing it it is acting it's you, you are a hypocrite there's nothing real about what you are doing and then he quotes Isaiah this people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me out of all the stuff that they do their their entire system their devotion, he says, it's in vain. It's all in vain that they worship me. Is your worship sincere? Would, would anybody that you work with be surprised to know that you worship every Sunday? When, when you sing this song, Hallelujah, Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Do you live a life that reflects that? Would the people that you hang with say you live a life that reflects what you sing about? What you talk about? Do you live a life that, that reflects uh, that, that, the, the truth that Jesus is worthy that he alone is, is worthy of every bit of glory and every bit of honor and every bit of praise. Does your personal worship, times where you're alone with God and, and praying to God and reading the scriptures, does that overflow into your life with your families, with your friends? Do you live a life of worship that is transformed? Does you wor- is your worship sincere? And the difference, I, I want to say this because there are some who will, will ask, does that mean what I don't feel like singing or praying or reading the scriptures that I should not? Because then I'm, I'm a hypocrite. There is a huge difference between hypocrisy on one hand and honesty on the other. An honest person, believer, will say, I don't feel like worshiping today. I don't feel like reading the scriptures today. I don't feel like praying today. I don't feel like doing these things. But Jesus is worthy. And I'm going to sing these songs. And as I sing them, I'm going to remind myself of the fact that Jesus is worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And I'm going to remind myself, even though I don't feel like it, I'm going to remind myself of it. That's an honest believer worshiping. But a hypocrite on the other hand is an actor it's like a fake. It's like you, you you do these things you go through the motions you sing the songs you pray you talk to people about God you you, you talk to people about the Bible and then there's nothing you, you live your life like verses 21 and 22. there's like nothing about your life that reflects your worship And so what Jesus would say to us if, if those, for those of us that are in that same boat, He would say the same thing he said to the Pharisees. You're worshiping in vain. You're worshiping absolutely in vain. You are an actor. You're a hypocrite. You're like Jason Bourne. Palm Sunday. It's sort of a reminder of hypocrisy in some ways, isn't it? the fact that there could have been this crowd of people that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem only to do what to him a few days later? He was welcomed into the city as a king, yet he was being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so here they are praising him, singing hallelujah, throwing down the palm branches, royalty, come in. Welcome. We, we love you. Praise God. Thank you for who you are. Yet they were so quick to turn Palm Sunday into Good Good Friday. And we discovered then that their worship was not sincere. For many of them, their worship was was, was fake. Same as that of the Pharisees here that Jesus is confronting. And it might be the same for some of us, some of you. Now look at the next line in verse 7. In vain, he says, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here they are, these Pharisees, worshiping him in vain. They're, yay, you know, do, do your worship thing, whatever, and it's, it's all in vain. And he says it's because, it stems from, they're teaching the commandments of, not the commandments of God, but they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of, of men. Fake worship stems from fake authority. Fake worship stems from fake authority. And what what I'm what I mean by that is is this. Look at verse eight. He says, In vain you worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. He says you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then Jesus gives them an example of what he's trying, what he, what he's trying, to, trying to say. Verse 10. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or, mo- or his mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his, fa- for his father or, or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Let, let, me, let me try to break it down for you. Jesus is saying, if... Moses said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, that you should honor your father and mother, which Moses did say. You should honor your father and mother. What should you do? Answer that. You should? Yeah. Trick question, I know. I don't know. What's what's the answer? You should honor your father and mother. It's, it's pretty clear is what Jesus is saying. But then suppose that you have a tradition which they call Corbin, which says that everything you have, you're to give to God. And so let's say then that your mom or your dad comes to you and says, hey, I'm actually starving and I need some food and some money to buy some food, all right? Um, or I need help paying my nursing home bill, all right? Because you already said, no, nah, you're not coming in with me. <laughs> like, go to, the, go to the nursing home. And you look at them and you're like, no. Like I everything I have I'm giving it to God. So what I could have helped you with, I can't. I don't have anything to help you with because I'm giving it all all to God. That's you See what J- Jesus is saying? You're violating because of your traditions. Because of your cultures that you've created on what it means to be to glorify God. You have violated what God has told you through the scriptures it's one small example of a bigger problem and I want to say this this is not one small example of a bigger problem that happened in the, in the uh, first century 2000 years ago this is a small example of a big problem that has invaded and is invading many churches across our country and across our world This is a problem that has invaded churches in our neighborhood. It's a problem called old school liberalism by some. And it simply means this the scriptures are no longer our final authority. The scriptures can be trumped by culture, by traditions, by history, by wisdom, by philosophy. The scriptures are no longer our final authority. Does tradition trump the Bible? Does culture, no matter what culture we come from, does my culture as from a Ohio middle class white dude culture, does anything in that culture trump what we see in the scriptures? Do cultures of ethnic minorities trump what we see in the scriptures? Do cultures, hip-hop culture or hipster culture, does that trump? Does anything in our culture or traditions trump the scriptures? And you see, I'm making a big point of this. If we are people of different backgrounds and ethnicities coming together, we've got to understand where our authority lies. This is the beauty of something that's cross-cultural. What we're doing is we're saying, look, here's my cult, here's my traditions, here's who I am, these are my backgrounds, this is my histories, but this is where we're going to land. This is what's going to be the center. This is what's going to be our authority. This is how we determine what what who God is, what God says of himself, how we go about living our life as Christians. Does this does culture, does tradition, does our background take precedence? Does man's wisdom trump the scriptures? Um, and a lot of us would quickly say no to that. But I don't, sometimes, and just being in Bible studies at different times and interacting, sometimes we don't really live that out. Sometimes man's wisdom seems to trump what we see recorded in God's word, in the scriptures this philosophies, people's opinions, people's ideas. Jesus didn't think so. Jesus didn't think any of that would, should and would trump what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. If someone asks you, I'm in love with my girlfriend, should I start having sex with her? Are you going to answer that question with your own ideas? Are you going to answer that question with your own philosophies, your own history, traditions? Or are you going to open carefully open up the Scriptures and say, let's figure this out. This is where our authority is. And as believers, this is where we are united and rooted. Let's figure this out. If someone is in, in, in a small group, throws out a question about God, how quickly are you to rattle off your idea about God? Put a a group of Christians together and tell them to have a Bible study and see if they ever open their Bible, right? I think God is like this. Well, if that's like God, then I think God is like... It's like all all of our ideas and our philosophies, like we're so smart, right? Or, Or when somebody throws out a question about who is God... What is, how has God revealed himself to us? What does God say about this in life? What does God say about this part of his character? Do we open up the scriptures and carefully go through and try to figure out what exactly it is that God has told us? If you go to our website, www.thegardenbaltimore.com, and you click uh, uh, on the statement, what it says what we believe, all right? You click on that, you have this drop-down thing that that, that pops up. And it's what we call our statement of basic beliefs. These are like basic beliefs that we believe to be true, that we think Christians should believe. And at the very top of our statement of belief is what we believe about the Scriptures. And it says this, We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament to be the verbally inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, infallible and God-breathed. We believe that the scriptures are where we find our definition of God, of what God wants us to do, of how God wants us to go about ministry, of how he wants us to grow a church, of how he wants us to do life together as a church. We believe that the scriptures are our authority on that. Our core. We believe that the word of God is living and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus, a couple verses later in verse 31, with the word that comes out of his mouth, he speaks a word and a deaf man who can't hear the word that he speaks is healed. By a word, get this, a word, Jesus speaks, and he gives hearing to a deaf man. Jesus' spoken word, the word of God, as preserved and given to us, is living, and it's active, and it's powerful. In Ezekiel, we see this story. We're going to go there next week, so you've got to make sure you come back for Easter next week. Dead, dry bones, a pile of them and through the word of god these bones have ligaments and skin and muscles and they get up and start dancing god's word is powerful it speaks and it gives life charles spurgeon in 1857 was at the crystal palace and he wanted to test the acoustics of the room and so and, and he was the only one by the way in this building and so to do so he shouted out john 129 from the from the bible he said behold the lamb of god which taketh away the sin of the world and when he shouted that out the words reverberated around the room and it went through the hallway and it hit the ears of a janitor who was in the hallway and in that moment he heard the those words and he was immediately in that moment converted god took a hold of his life because the word of god the scriptures It's powerful, it's living, it's active, it convicts, it moves, it awakens us. The scriptures then become God's word which is preserved for us. Humans cannot know who God is on our own. We can't just sit back in a living room somewhere and talk in circles and try to figure out who God is. We can't do that and we could we could talk for hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and years, and in in and of our own power power we will never be able to figure out God on our own. The only way we can know God is if he has revealed himself to us, and so God has revealed himself to us through the word and so as we approach the scriptures, then it is our authority and 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 we uh are are as committed as Jesus was to these words. And here's why, all right? Lest you're wondering, why is Joel going on and on about biblical authority? Here's why. This is how it affects worship, and this is how it affects our transformation. If we do not have an image or a definition, a concept of God that is true, if God has indeed revealed himself to the world through his word, and we do not have a true biblical understanding of who God is, then what we've done is we've created a concept, we've created a definition of who God is, and when we come to worship, and by the way, the concept or definition of who God is typically looks like us, acts like us, thinks like us, and does pretty much what we would do. And then we come together and we worship, and we're worshiping, and we're raising our hand, we're like God, and we're singing, and we're praying, and we're doing our thing throughout the week, and we're, what we're doing, all we're doing is worshiping the God that we have constructed with our thinking, with our ideas. Therefore, we're really just worshiping ourselves because he looks and acts a lot like us. He thinks, he does what we would do. And so then we are worshiping a God that doesn't really exist. And our worship, we could we we be very devout, very committed to this worship, and it's all, as Jesus would say, in vain. It's, it's all in vain. You honor me with your lips, he said, but your hearts are far from me. You're worshiping in vain. So the crowd on Palm Sunday, they they turned Like this, in an instant. And they became the crowd on Good Friday. Why? For many of them, I believe they were probably worshiping a concept of the Messiah that wasn't biblical. They were worshiping the concept of this king who was going to come in with violence, with swords, as opposed to what Isaiah told us in the scriptures, that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so then, uh, th- this, this, this uh, fake worship, which stems from fake transformation, absolutely hinders our, uh, or I'm sorry, fake worship, which stems from fake authority, absolutely hinders our transformation. Because what happens is we just focus on the outside of the cup. We then just merely focus on the external We're moral on the outside. We look good on the outside, but on the inside, we are filthy. And like the Pharisees, we try to clean ourselves up. We try to wash just the right way. We try to worship just the right way. And we look good, but on the inside, we don't look good. We're devoted, but it's all in vain. Look at verse 18. He said to them, there, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Jesus changes the flow. They're living in this idea that what's on the outside, the sin, when you touch a Gentile or you touch a woman that's bleeding or whatever it is that might get sin on you. They're living in this mentality that the sin starts out here and it works its way in here. Jesus is completely reversing this. and He's saying you have to understand it's not the external things that affect you. It's the internal things. It's the stuff that starts with you on the inside that affects the external. Look at the list in verse 21. For From, from within, he says... For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Now, if, if any one of us uh, has been trying to uh, skip on by without being convicted of anything, evil thoughts should probably get just about every one of us. I mean, my goodness. The first one he throws at us is evil thoughts. I'm guilty. All right? Wow. Evil thoughts. The next one, he says, Sexual immorality, which is porneia, is this really big word that, that basically involves anything, any kind of sexual activity outside of, of marriage. So it could be perversion, it could be casual sex, it could be pornography. Fellas, it could be looking at pretty women, which is just like a code word for lust, right? Porneia, sexual immorality. Um, theft, he goes on, murder, the taking of a life, adultery, how could she run into the arms of another man, coveting, wanting to have something that's not yours, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, which is like the perverse use of your sexuality, envy, wanting to be someone else, slander, pride foolishness. Is there anything on that list, as you read it, is there anything on that list that you have to ignore in order to go about life like you've been doing it? Is there anything on that list that you have to kind of slowly cross out, or or it's going to demand some change on your part? <laughs> Amen. Is there anything on your list that, that would demand the way you interact or a change in the way that you interact with family members or friends or the way that you do your job is there anything on this list that uh that that you would completely just have to blot out and ignore in order to go about life spend your free time spend time on the internet hang out even sometimes at church Jesus wasn't interested in what the Pharisees were interested in. The Pharisees were interested in what's out here, coming in here, and so they tried to push themselves away from the sin as much as possible. Jesus has no problem being around sinners. He has no problem being around sin because Jesus knows that it's not what out, what's out there that affects what's in here. It's what's in here that affects out there. So Jesus was focusing on this dark place of our hearts, This is what defiles you. It's this darkness. And the Pharisees have a problem with this because, see, the Pharisees know how to wash their hands. Like, they can baptize their hands. They know how to wash the sin off physically. But they don't know how to wash their hearts. See, if it's the heart, that's the problem. If what defiles me in front of another person or what defiles me in front of God is not the external things, but it's actually my heart, the essence of who I am has defiled me. If that's what defiles us, if that's what defiles them, how do you wash the heart? What do you, how, how can we do anything about what it is now that actually defiles, defiles us? This is the same problem that the great reformer Martin Luther had. Um, Martin Luther, before he became a Christian would walk into a confessional booth and he would sit there and he would confess all of his sins to the priest. He would one by one, he would like all this stuff that's in here, that's defiling him. He believed that he had to get it out here in order to be right. And so he would confess his sins over and over to the priest. And he says, as soon as he walked out, of the confessional booth, as soon as he walked out, he would have to turn and walk back into the confessional booth because he just thought of more sins that, 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 that need to be confessed. Or he just committed another sin. And so he would confess more. And then he'd walk out of the confessional booth and he'd be like, ah, and we'd walk back in. It was like there was so much darkness and so much defilement inside of him. There was nothing he could do about it. And the guilt was just absolutely overwhelming. This goes back to Mark chapter 1, if you remember our very first sermon in Mark. John the Baptist said, there's one coming who's greater than I am. He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's one coming who will thrust the very Spirit of God into your life and into your heart and will baptize your heart, will wash your Your heart. This is what George Lyle, going back to the the ex-slave in the late 1700s, this is what he discovered. George Lyle, in his own testimony, said that he tried to earn salvation many times, over and over. He tried to earn his salvation. He tried to do enough to, to take care of what's in here. And he said uh, he, he finally saw his own condemnation and that there was no way to be saved other than through Christ. And he said, I'm not the slave of any man, but I'm enslaved to another. I'm enslaved to Christ. And when he was freed by, by his, his original owner, he began planting, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he can baptize your heart, that he can wash your heart. He began preaching that gospel all up and down the East Coast, planting churches all up and down the East Coast. His, his owner died. The family tried to re-enslave him, at which point he paid off uh, what, what he owed them, and he moved, fled uh, um, Savannah and moved to Kingston, Jamaica and became, I want you to understand this, became the very first Baptist missionary. The first foreign missionary went to Jamaica, and when he got there, he was filled with compassion, he said, with the miserable state in which the slaves lived. And so he began to preach the gospel in Jamaica. Do you you see what he's doing here? He's looking around, he's like, oh my goodness, there are problems all around. There are systemic evils, there's injustices, there's personal sins, there's corporate sins, there is brokenness all around. So what am I going to do? What's my call? How can I go about fixing this? He was committed to preaching the gospel. And so he, he planted a church, he started a church and began preaching the gospel weekly to slaves to ex-slaves to slave owners. And by the end of his life there were he, he had seen 500 people come to Christ and find new transformed life in the Jesus that transforms. And those people continued after his death continued preaching the gospel. And by 1832 through an extension basically of his own ministry there were 20,000 people in Jamaica that had found new life, transformed life through the gospel, which include not only slaves and ex slaves but it it includes slave owners. And a few years after that, in 1838, slavery was emancipated in Jamaica. How? Largely in part to this George Lyle, who said there are problems all over around us. There's injustice all around us. There's pain and brokenness and sin and evil, which by the way, during his ministry, as he was preaching the gospel, they, because of him, and they saw this transformation taking place, they actually outlawed uh, preaching to slaves. And so then he saw whippings himself. He saw murders, brutality beyond our imagination. And he continued to preach the good news of the gospel because he believed that Jesus can transform lives. And what we see then is that through the ministry of George Lyle in Jamaica, Jamaica was transformed. Jesus changes hearts. He does what we cannot do for ourselves. And so then this is real transformation. It's not just a fake kind of dipping our hands, doing what we can to look better transformation, but this is transformation on the inside. It changes our motives. It changes our thinking. It changes everything about us. We are transformed. We are, as the Bible says, a new creation. And so this trans- transformation, which comes from real authority found in the scriptures, in the powerful word of God, which cuts, what we find is that even the worst of sinners can be redeemed and forgiven. The worst of us, murderers, adulterers even the worst can be redeemed and forgiven and when we begin to understand then this this god who forgives us this christ who washes us not just our outside but changes us at our core transforms the essence of who we are and turns us into a new creature this then leads to real authentic worship where we can sing together hallelujah thank you jesus lord you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise amen let's let's stand i want I want to pray together and then we are going to sing god we thank you for the fact that that we are indeed transformed on the inside not just simply on the outside through your powerful word and, God, it leads us to authentic and real worship. So, God, I pray that we live lives of transformation. If there is anyone here who has been uh, uh, convicted of the fact that their heart is indeed dark and they're, the fact that uh, uh, they're, they're defiled um, comes from their hearts, what's on the inside, and they are here and, and understanding for maybe the first time that Christ baptizes and washes the heart, does what we can never do for ourselves. I pray that they trust in this Christ, that they accept that cleansing, that they have faith. And God, may we live lives that, that sing. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of all the glory. He's worthy of all of our honor. He's worthy of all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.